Hey there, welcome to this episode of the Broke Girl Society podcast. I'm your host, Christina, and this episode is going to be part one of the Kitty series. And why is it called the Kitty series? It's because we have the wonderful Kitty Martz, who is the executive director of Voices of Problem Gambling Recovery in Oregon. And she has come on to share all her little bits of wisdom and things that she's come across in years of recovery and um, in her peer work and, and all the wonderful things she's done uh, to help advocate and bring awareness to problem gambling, especially for women. So I hope you enjoy this episode and we'll catch you in the next one. Thanks. Hi, Christina. Thank you for having me. And uh, I have been tracking you just the last little while. But listen, I want to say you have put yourself out there, as Brene Brown says, in the arena and really shown up for women in gambling recovery. So I just want to acknowledge you and I, before we turn the microphone on, just had a quick chat about self-care and easy does it and taking things in stride. And I, I can probably speak for all your listeners just to let you know how grateful we are that you're doing such a big project as this podcast and making it so diverse and intersectional and open to lots of different pathways. Um, thank you for your work. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah. So let's delve into you. Um, okay. You've, you've done do a lot of great things and, and I'm looking forward to hear it. So if you want to just kind of give us a little bit of your backstory and yep. then we can kind of go from there. Right on. Um, I have been um, in gambling recovery, I say, for the last nine years. And you might notice uh, that I don't say my day is thus and such. I'm a big believer that there can be some bits and starts, some data points. People might call it a or a lapse or a relapse along the way. Um, so I try to define my gambling recovery by more variables than just one date. And that can be my quality of life, uh, my meaningful relationships I'm having, my sense of self, how my other cross addictions and challenges are doing, how my career is going, that kind of thing. I am a certified gambling recovery mentor, and we are required by law to have two years of out and out abstinence from gambling. And I absolutely have that. Um, so it's just kind of a different way to look at things. Uh, I think harm reduction has come into part of the model. And I know that uh, there's a lot of discussion around not promoting moderation. I certainly don't. I also recognize that we all don't get this on our very first pass sometimes. And we have to make room for folks that struggled. I, I've listened to your podcast. That's part of your story too, isn't it? That it just kind of came and revisited and said, hey, do you have a tool this size in your holster? And you're like, ah, actually, <laughs> right? Exactly what happened. It kind of came back and hit me. And I was just like, so it was like, okay, I've got to change this up, you know? And every time, you know, an urge or something hit me, it's like, okay, I've got to change this up. You know, you just keep, you just keep working until you find something that truly, truly works and keeps you on the path. Yeah. And you don't, my analogy is when you're in high school and you take a math test and you don't get a passing grade, they don't send you back to kindergarten. 
they go, hey, do you want to do extra credit? Do you want to drop your low score? Do you want to study for a week and make it up? And, and you just crack on from where you left off. And I think we need to make room for that in our recoveries. It's part of the battling stigma that so many of us have of, oh, I've blown it. I, you know, I messed up last night. It's like, well, yeah, you found out that you had great skills up to this point to manage your gambling and that's where they let off. So let's give you a tool to meet those skills. Um, Anyway, that's my soapbox around harm reduction and time and definition. I'm also really grateful you used my last name when you introduced me. And I'll just kind of expand upon um, why I asked that you go ahead and do that. I feel like because I chose to go into this career I have now in gambling recovery, one of the prerequisites is that I have lived experience. I can't deny that I had a problem gambling disorder. And um, if I do, I really won't be qualified to do what I do of working for a nonprofit to represent people that have problem gambling disorders and do outreach and advocacy and help folks uh, with gambling recoveries of promoting it. So with that um, privilege, I think it is that I'm not trying to be a oh, I don't know, like a executive banker uh, that's in a position of authority over money where there could be a lot of stigma around uh, management of trust, of funds or something, or a school principal. I don't, I don't know. There's many fields. Healthcare, I think, can be really critical of addictions. Um, I don't have that in my field. And because of that, I want to be the kind of ally that puts myself out there and says, I have the privilege of not having anonymity. And so I'm going to hold myself accountable by being very public about my recovery. And I recognize not everyone could or should do that. And it's an especially difficult choice early on, I've heard you mention this in your podcast, uh, that you found, Christina, that by telling people that you had a gambling disorder, that helped with your own accountability by being out. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, for me, it took a while, though, and there's still probably people in my outer family circles that um, still don't know, because I haven't uh, really addressed it. I'm, I come from, you know, when I think about that, I just think, you don't owe anybody your story uh, unless unless it has affected them personally, unless your gambling has affected them personally. You don't owe anybody your story. But when we don't share our story, to me, uh, we're not owning it. And uh, that, that was really important to me to to own my story, to share my story, uh, because the more I did that, the more authentic of a person I felt. And um, when when I gambled for so long, and struggled with my identity because I, you know, had this false identity and all these, not, not like literal, but you know what I mean? Like I had this one perception of me and, and things like that. Um, when I decided to stop gambling, I didn't know who I was. And so it was really, really important to me, uh, on this journey to find out who I, who I am and to share my truth and my story and, um, you know, really just get back to the most authentic person I could possibly be. And through this, this, you know, whole journey so far. And, um, it's been great. It's been freeing. It's been, you know, is everything hundred percent good? No. Um, but at least I know I can handle things, you know, in a healthier, 
uh, healthier way. So, and I just want to touch about, upon something that you said about problem uh, gambling or controlled gambling. That seems to be really, really big in um, the like the council problem gambling councils, kind of like all these different different things that they're talking about controlled gambling. And for me, I'm just going to ask you what you think. I think we're all controlled gamblers until we're not, right? I gambled for 15 years. The first half of those 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 years, I was a controlled gambler. I paid my bills. I only used money that was extra. Um, and then I somehow tipped. I don't, I can't exactly tell you when or why or where, but then I became not a controlled gambler. I became a compulsive gambler, disordered gambler, problem gambler. And so when they advocate controlled gambling, or um, I've even seen people where they say it can help a compulsive gambler go back to normal. And there might be one out of 10,000 it might work for. But even in my groups, I am very um, upfront about not talking about controlled gambling because I do not believe in it personally. What are your thoughts on that? Let's let's explore that a little more. Oh, no, thank, thank you for being willing to go there. I, th I think if we make it taboo, it kind of gets energy. So we might as well put it out on the table and get some different takes on it. Um, have you ever heard the expression, this is from the rooms, but something like once you're a pickle, you can't go back to being a cucumber kind of thing. Yeah, and, that's pretty common. <laughs> yeah. So I know for me, there is just so little possibility I could sit down in a high transactive velocity video, kind of whether it's a smartphone or a machine, and just play a little and have it be social and fun and set a time and a budget. Like that horse is out of the barn. That ship has sailed. It's over. That's not going to happen for me. That said, I, I'm also a gambling counselor, and I do see examples of people being able to use different uh, forms of gambling as a, we call it like the lily pad. You don't want to put your full body weight on it and step firmly on it or lay down upon it, but you could use it as a stepping stone to get across the pond. So in Oregon, most of us are addicted to video lottery machines. There's over 12,000 of them here, and they're usually within a short distance uh, from your house, uh, very available and accessible. Um, and if someone says, well, I've been buying um, scratch it tickets and it only costs me $2 a week instead of my, I don't know if you talk about money on the show, I do use dollar amounts. I think it's important to take what was vague and make it specific. Yeah. But if someone says I was losing my whole paycheck and not having food or rent, and now I lose $2 a week. And I know uh, that still isn't being abstinent, but it scratches the itch for now and, and helps that part of my brain that's so um, wanting to be able to get the stimulation of gambling without having the consequences. My response is, let's try that. Let's monitor it. Let's see if that builds up dependency, tolerance, withdrawal, if you take it away. Does it keep the same neural pathways in your brain open that the video machines used to do? Like, let's just keep it on the radar and see how that goes. And some people are able to make that work. That said, the easiest, most effective way to change behaviors is to just extinguish it. 
And that's the hard thing with process disorders. I also identify with someone who's had food issues. And if I have just some treats in the house, I want to have a lot of treats in my treat hole in my face. Um, so that doesn't work well for me to do a moderation thing with processed, snacky, fatty, salty things. It's just better to not bring them in the house for me. And I think that's probably true with gambling too. If you can just go cold turkey, here's an interesting thing. Anyone go cold turkey during the pandemic and not really by choice, but because their venue was closed that they couldn't go to the casino for a while. Cause I work with folks, I have peers who have stopped gambling now for a year and a quarter. And they were going full bore up until March 17th when we got shut down. I think when it, what, I can speak for myself, when, when our casino shut down uh, last year, I was still in full blown addiction. Um, so I think we were shut down, they were shut down like maybe 45 days and I was back within the week. Um, but, I didn't do online. Now, I think when, when the casinos and stuff shut down, that's when online picked up for a lot of women. I would say 60% of the women, 60 to 70% of the women I talked to are online gamblers. Um, so one thing though, when you said, you know, you take the substance away, you know, it helps, but we all have to handle money. We all have to handle cash. And so finding that, finding how that's going to um, help us with this, Problem, you know, a lot of people will hand over finances to a trusted person, you know, a spouse, or uh, they will go cashless if that's if that's a problem. But you know, if you're an online gambler, uh, you know, you don't need cash. And so it's just like I think that's why this problem, this addiction, is one of the hardest to to get past. Is because what feeds the addiction, aside from from our compulsiveness, is money and it's readily available to most of us and we have to use it in everyday life. So what are your thoughts kind of on that? Well, um, that that's a good segue to really the, what I want to talk today about is advocacy. I want to do this episode first about building capacity to do advocacy. And I'm not saying if you placed your last bet, 10 minutes ago and you're listening on the radio right now or something, why don't you go testify before Congress tomorrow? Maybe a couple of steps in between there, like (laughs) detoxing, figuring out who you are, but I am finding, and I know you agree with me in doing your podcast is, is your form of building capacity to do advocacy. This is as close to feeling the rush of gambling that I've ever had and much more pure, much more meaningful, aligned with my values and it's gonna stop suffering and others. And when I see what's happening with technology that in the last year and a quarter, we leapt forward 10 years in what's happening with technology, including and especially with gambling technology, we're about to have an epidemic. And the addiction rates are so much higher when we can gamble in our yoga pants, in secrecy, cashless. Um, it's always been the expression money, time, location are kind of the, the hat trick of causing gambling addiction correlated with it. Well, if the money is pushing a button that transfers not just from checking money you have, but from credit or uh, predatory credit lending, it is so easy to get those high interest ones. And when you're in a, a fugue state, 
you don't even know what's happening. We've all heard that story or been there. Um, when the location is attached to your person on your handheld device 24 seven, that's a lot that it's right there. And we're already kind of pre-addicted to our phones and social media and checking it. Um, so I really want to see um, people that identify with needing to do something they're passionate about, setting a trajectory of, I want to get on um, a pathway to be able to speak my truth, um, that this harmed me. I own that my gambling disorder happened. I own that I'm going to fix it. I also would like to put it out there that there are people who are benefiting from exploiting folks that develop gambling disorders. And I'm either gonna be part of the problem by saying nothing, or I'm going to be part of the solution by contributing in some way to the conversation that this will not abide. And we've got too much nonsense and static in the air out there um, of like responsible gambling. What, you know what, take, take that whole responsible gambling kind of catchphrase soundbite and why don't you just put it over there on the shelf with your awards and stuff. Let's talk about what would really be responsible gambling, which I think is public policy that there's regulators that say this is going to harm this percentage of people. Um, with handheld devices, like high-speed kind of games in the UK, it's 9.2% addiction rate. Um, that's extremely high. Uh, we need to practice the precautionary principle, where if we think it could be of harm to a lot of people, we don't let it happen kind of thing. So um, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm kind of going down my rabbit hole here of like, let's do something. Part of what we can do to fix this is kind of organize ourselves. Like I love that you've uh, signaled to other women that this is a safe place to come and have women just be women in gambling recovery. Like those are, and, and you're even kind of open around that, which way to be inclusive. Um, I think we've got to signal to each other that uh, we have things in common and we can connect. And maybe that's that you have like a viral STD or identify something other than cisgendered heterosexual, or you're part of like the Me Too movement resonated with a sexual abuse experience you've had or substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, my case, like a sensory processing disorder. Like there's so many things where we've been um, silent because we live in this bubble of shame of these challenges we go through. And by people like you, Christina, going, um, yeah, I had this really weird thing. I never knew I'd get it. I never wanted it. And sometimes it comes back and it's really painful and embarrassing. Why don't I have a podcast to talk about it? That's exactly <laughs> what I'm Let me tell you about. all my dirty, my right? dirty secrets. Let me tell you everything. Um, because that's the only way I know how to, uh, <laughs> to really get it off my chest. You know, let me mm -hmm. just share it all with you. And I, and I really, 
as the podcast will progress more, I will share deeper and more, um, it, you know, just as the conversations, um, lead that way. But with, when you talk about, I want to talk about generational gambling, um, you know, because you were talking about different ways to advocate and, I get a lot, a lot from women who are trying to find ways to um, transfer this energy or uh, this gambling, gambling, um, you know, what to do with their time now that they're not gambling. And so I do talk to, you know, I tell them, well, find something you're passionate about, whether it's, you know, it doesn't have to be anything major. It just has to be something that makes you feel good, that will continue to make you feel good. Not that short-lived dopamine high that you feel good for however long you're gambling, but something that you've put, you've vested your time into and you've, you've put forward um, that kind of stuff. So it's great to really talk about advocacy. Now, when I think of advocacy for myself, and this is something I think everybody can do um, when it comes to generational gambling is, you know, talk to your family members about it. You, there are so many families that have gambling issues in their family, but because nobody talks about it, um, it's just still not really talked about. And so like, you've got mothers and daughters going, you've got fathers and sons going, especially, uh, you know, the East coast places where it's really been prevalent for a long time, you know, it becomes this generational thing. So what we can do, and this is something that I really can see myself pushing is, is starting with our youth, starting with our children, you know, start, start talking about like we do with drugs and alcohol, start talking about gambling addiction, because, you know, with this being, being one of the highest suicide rates addiction, which you hear so much, um, you would think we'd be talking about it more, that we would be trying to literally save these lives as young as we possibly can. So when you think of advocacy, you know, somebody that's out there listening, what can, what can I do? What can I do? Um, you can have the conversation with your kids. You know, you can, you can just talk to them about the dangers of gambling addictions. And so, you know, it can be just really, really small things. It could just be talking about, about things that, that, you know, can lead to gambling, problem gambling and things like that. So, you know, when you start baby steps that can kind of help, you know, like, like you said, it kind of gives you the same kind of feeling that gambling did because you feel the passion for it. Mm -hmm. Um, well, but it's, it's different. Yeah. So, oh, wow. You just covered so much there. Kids before the pandemic were real busy in school hearing about bullying and um, guns and uh, shooter drills and stuff. And they did not have a lot of room in their curriculum to have gambling education come in. I hang out with a lot of prevention specialists that are like, how do we get our schools to give us a minute to talk about this? So I've heard that. Yeah. So now, that. now we have this other whole problem of homeschooled and video schooled kids and struggling and like they're going to be hard to reach. So what I would suggest to help with kids, there's a movie out there called, um, I think it's called Screenagers. Have you seen Screenagers? Um, look it up. I, they show it at 
different venues, they'll probably make it available online, but it talks about uh, having a parental plan for children using handheld devices. And if our kids are gonna get addicted to gambling, it's gonna be on their phones or their computers. It's gonna be through this graphics kind of loot boxes on games. Did you know that um, the online gambling sites actually have um, games that you can bet on the people playing them like League of Legends and stuff? huge following like kids can identify their heroes that are big gamers and online game celebrities far more than any kind of like musician or actor and stuff like that um so we really need to address the early on handheld dopamine distribution device that is phones and be very thoughtful about when kids start on phones and in what purpose they use them and how they're monitored. Um, shifting gears, I think not only should um, we have a place to have it be safe to talk about our gambling with our families, because that's one of the five main things that science says helps us on a recovery path. Um, is having our families and people close to us involved in our recovery process. Um, but there's a thing in smart recovery, which is part of my story. I've uh, been in the rooms of Gamblers Anonymous and many other different kinds of techniques to help with my gambling recovery. And smart recovery has this thing called the lifestyle bounce pie, where you basically draw a circle and divide it into like maybe eight segments. And you can have like career, finances, spirituality, recovery, health and wellness, uh, family, pets, education. Um, everyone's eight pie pieces are going to be different. I would suggest that we pay attention to which one of those areas needs a little more shored up before we're going to be ready to do some advocacy on the level like that you and I are doing it right now. If your uh, health is compromised, I, I've been 100 pounds overweight before. That made it really hard to move through my day, depression-wise, um, pain-wise, self-esteem-wise. That needed addressed before I could have the confidence to go testify regularly in front of the legislature. Um, if I'm wondering how I'm gonna get healthy meals on the table and rent for my studio apartment paid, that's a little stressful and hard for me to write and present my story um, because I need to have a sustainable financial plan for myself and that needed addressed. So we have all these things that need to be growing in tandem um, to create kind of a sustainable self-management program to then be able to go out and say to others, okay, I'm in a pretty good place now. Let's do this together. And that's not to say that advocacy can't happen right now today, no matter where you are. Um, I got to tell your listeners, like, it feels great to pop onto your computer. You can do it right now while you're listening. Um, pick someone. Um, Elizabeth Warren has been really a big advocate for gambling, recovery, treatment, screening for service people. She has always had legislative bills kind of in the works the last handful of years, and she's got a little clout. So make this like a bipartisan issue. Um, there are people on both sides of the aisle that are interested in looking at forming public policy on a state or national level. Figure out who your senators are, your Congress people, and 
fire off an email. You can do it in five minutes. A lot of us are perfectionists and we're like, oh, I want to tell my whole story and use really verbose language. No, don't do that. Write like five sentences and say, I had a gambling disorder and it led me to need uh, SNAP benefits because I couldn't feed my kids because it was affecting my life so much. And then I was in Section 8 housing and that was a social cost. And so this affected my community too, not just me. And now I'm better and I'm concerned that we hear our state government sponsoring all this gambling, at least in Oregon. I don't know what it's like where you are in Oklahoma. It's our government. Like we picked this to have a robust lottery. I'm concerned that it's a regressive tax on people who are already marginalized who are already suffering from being an older adult and lonely and having time on their hands or a person who has adverse childhood experiences or, you know what, trauma and not just trauma like capital T, but in my case, kind of like slow burn lots of medium grade trauma. Um, I've heard you say, Christina, on your podcast here that like other people's problems were worse than mine that contributed to my gambling. All right, let's unpack that one. You can drown in three inches of water as easily as 10 feet of water. And it took what it took for us to be suffering enough that we wanted to be able to self-medicate and get away from those feelings that happen. So it's really hard to quantify if our experiences were bad enough to warrant the gambling disorder catching on, it clearly was, you know, it's not because we were yeah. jerks that we got this. Right. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people too, they have the misconception of um, gambling addicts, you know, that's something that we all run across, you know, everybody thinks, you know, the gambling addicts are, are certain, certain type of people, but what they really don't understand is, um, we're not, we're highly intelligent. Uh, we're, uh, you know, professionals in everyday life and we're just like anybody else. We just didn't maybe build the coping skills we needed to deal with, with life. And that's how for myself, and that's the only one I can speak for is that's how I chose to deal with, um, my compulsive gambling. I mean, my, my, problems was, was through gambling, which caused compulsive gambling. So, um, but when you were talking about the state legislative too, because we kind of jumped from one to the other, Oklahoma is um, heavily dependent on gambling revenue. Uh, we get quite a bit through, and then they also get tribal funding and things like that. And so I know for a lot of like um, senators and things like that, a lot of them try and walk this line of not being pro-gambling, not being uh, against gambling, they kind of have to walk this political line. And I think that's where a lot of things get lost is because we don't have anybody that is willing to step up and say uh, here locally anyway, step up and say, look, we've got to protect these people. We've got to protect the people who are struggling, who, you know, who aren't finding the help that they need because they're, it's not being known. You know, I run into people all the time. Um, that didn't know anything about G I didn't know anything about GA. Uh, and I was a gambler for 15 years and the 15 years that I gambled, I never heard a story of a compulsive gambler. And I know people don't believe me when I say that, but that is the honest gosh truth. And, um, you know, so I feel like too, when it comes to where the state and things come up, you know, they, they 
start talking about these these laws and things like that. But I definitely wish they would push more funding into um, letting the resources be known, not just available, but known, you know, like really, really put it out there. Yeah. So you mentioned once in your podcast that you'd seen some kind of 800 number tacked on a machine what, 10, 15 years? And uh, you you just were blind to it. We all were. We have that number. It is too late to do recon of waiting for us to turn into pickles and then being like, here, call this number. The rate in Oregon where we have phenomenal services to help people like me um, is like, I don't know, 1% of the folks that have gambling disorder actually seek out public services. It's really hard to measure. Um, So we have got to do prevention in a legit way. And I don't mean prevention like telling kids gambling's bad. That's not the thing. Um, I I mean, it's a good step to start talking about it, but let's do some peer reviewed like evidence-based practices to shut down gambling. And that's by having regulations that go, okay, writing's on the wall. We're going to have handheld digital. It's coming. It's going to either be black market and that'll take our funds. So we might as well keep it in Oklahoma and go ahead and work with casinos to geofence their areas to have their own dish. That's what's going to happen. You know, each casinos can have its own platform where when you're within a certain vicinity, you'll be able to play on their app in that area or something. They're going to own the airspace. And when that happens, let's at least have some legit tools that you don't just say set a time in a budget, but make it so you can only play 15 minutes at a time and then it shuts down and you have to log back in and there's some interruption of the chemical flow there. Let's have it be that you can't have losses where bells and whistles go off and it looks like a win and your brain thinks you won and you you get dilated up there and you keep playing. Like let's have rules about stuff like that. Let's have it be mandatory that there's a display of exactly how much you've won or lost this session or this day or over time and a little food for thought. In fact, like, um, let's have it send you an update every day of, hey, kitty, welcome to Sunday. You've now lost this much money on our app. Would you like to play today? How about that instead of here's some free chits or something like that? And these are the kind of laws that, countries that are ahead of us in technology, like the UK, have. They have rules around when you can have advertising, can't be like in the middle of a televised sports game. It needs to be five minutes before or five minutes after. But if you watch uh, like Sunday football here, apparently my dad likes to film them for me and then send me videos of all the advertisements for gambling. It's like, I know, dad, I Yep, those are those are sure in there all day Sunday, aren't they? They're just one after another. Um, so, like, let's really put some tools in place and ask our legislators: Could this be a thing that you go ahead and plan for to just mitigate the harm that's going to happen if you're going to do it anyway? I don't know. Yeah, um, definitely. I think there's there's definitely more things that can be done um, in the state, especially as they're, you know, like I see, you know, they're trying to make sports betting uh, legal in a lot of different states and, and some states are, are doing really good to fight it. But it will come to a point where they'll be like, well, we either do it this way and make money off of it or it becomes a, a 
you know, black market thing and, and we don't get the revenue off of it. But, you know, um, and fortunately here in Oklahoma, they have not allowed bet, uh, sports betting or online gambling uh, yet. Uh, I'm not sure. I really haven't seen it really proposed, but um, I'm not really that that attuned with it all. But um, yeah, so I think definitely there's definitely more that can be done on a legislative kind of um, platform where we can set things in place that will help us maybe recognize that we have a problem sooner rather than later. Um, so as we kind of wind this episode down, what what is it you wanted to, to say to somebody who maybe is listening in and is just kind of like, I don't know, trying to figure out how to start recovery and is kind of wanting maybe to put their energy into something else. I know we've talked about a lot of different things, but how would you, how would you tell them to start? Like what, what would be the first small step you would tell somebody who's listening uh, to kind of start their recovery, kind of start, give them something uh, really to kind of help focus uh, their recovery on. Mm. I, I feel like I want to flip through like a file index file of slogan bumper <laughs> stickers or something in my mind, but it's, it's things like that you legit see out there, like uh, get in where you fit in, find people like you, like me and you are alike that we're going through this and feel less alone and hear what they do and take what works and leave the rest. I had a lot of trouble with a non-secular spiritual program, but I got a lot out of it anyway. And like, just, it doesn't like you might, you might, um, I mean, who doesn't like cookies, but maybe you don't like oatmeal cookies, but they're still cookies or chocolate chip or you like chocolate chip with nut, like go ahead and have all the recovery cookies. And that includes health and wellness things to shore up your body that has been run down through this process to start feeling good again and get our, our dopamine and our serotonin flowing, have some kind of movement plan along with your recovery plan and rest plan and eating well plan, and then include other things than just community support groups. And that could be a nonprofit. It could be a mental health uh, board of directors, you don't have to be on the board, you can be a friend of the board and attend. Um, it can be like a local Alano type club that you get involved with, but find other people that inspire you that can mentor you in how to make a difference and wait until you get that first year, you get like a couple nice nugget moments of serenity. Those things are few and far between. And we want to have as many of them as possible as soon as possible, but it's going to take a bit. So anything we can do to get those going again, laughing, feeling together, whether that's on Zoom or you know, in real life, um, do those things to feel good again and get connected. So you can start making a difference by writing letters, testifying, reading up on what's happening in legislation, looking at what the trends are in gambling, so we can prevent future generations from going through what we went through. I think more than anything, um, we can start by trying to build a common vocabulary. And that's one of I forgive myself, I'm not broken. Um, I'm worthy, I'm effective, I'm strong, I'm courageous. You know, if nothing else during any given day, if I just goof up across the board, at least I showed up. 
you know, and did some brave things. And um, I don't know how much of a difference it makes. We did get one nice bill passed around historic horse racing here in Oregon this year. And it wasn't the win I wanted, but I felt like I really tried. And when I was gambling, I wasn't trying very hard at much. If I was mostly just spending a lot of my energy gambling. So, so that was nice. Um, I think I, I just want to close with that phrase. This was reminded to me at our board retreat with Voices of Problem Gambling Recovery the other day um, of Margaret Mead. Remember the anthropologist from back in the 50s? Um, I do. And, yeah. And she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And what you're doing here, Christina, is going to change the world. So thank you for doing this. Well, hey, and I'm, I'm trying a little bit at a time. I know it's changing me. Yeah. Uh, that's all. That's really all I can probably take credit for is I know that it's changing me. It's changing my life. Um, and so I really appreciate you coming on. And we've got we'll have uh, four more episodes after this. Just just talking about uh compulsive gambling, talking about ways that we can recover from compulsive gambling, talking, talking about ways that we can, um, advocate Mm -hmm. and, and bring awareness to compulsive gambling, but most importantly, um, that we can find some healing and some hope in recovery. So again, thank you so much, Kitty, for being here and, um, well, we'll catch you next week. So thanks.